Thank you for tuning in to the Her Royal Roots podcast station. Lessons are taught by Holda Dawid or a special guest bringing insight to the Hebraic understanding of what it means to be a wife, mother, or a woman in a Hebraic community. All of the insight we give is through a scriptural, cultural, or bio-agricultural understanding of the times in which the scriptures were written. We are so thankful that you chose to join us. We hope that you are blessed. Shalom. Royalty. Royalty. How is it a chosen people? Bible in my hand, word inside my heart, and pain before my eyes. Broken people wanting to believe in something, looking for a lie, trying to find the truth. Welcome to the Her Royal Roots podcast. Today we're going to be discussing sensory impressions and perceptions as it pertains to 1 Samuel chapter 19. If this is your first time tuning in with us on the First Samuel series, then you can go to the Royal Roots YouTube channel and click on the First Samuel playlist and you can get all caught up. If you are tuning in and you have been tuning into the First Samuel series, we're going to take a little shift into a different direction with the First Samuel studies as we close it out for the next few chapters. The reason being is we spent a lot of time reading through the text, pulling out words, and understanding the character development. And now we're moving into some deeper development of the characters that's going to help us in understanding ourselves, our relationship to our our creator, and our relationships to one another. The journey is going to be one of introspection moving forward. We're going to look at the narrative of David. Saul, Jonathan, and their companions as we move toward the expected end of David becoming king. If you've been following along, then you know that's exactly where we're heading. So today we're going to look into what it means to think. As we've been going through this studies, a lot of the thinking has been left to the facilitator and a lot of the question and answering has been left to the listener or the audience. So now we're going to look at our walk as Hebrews and as those walking out the biblical lifestyle and we're going to look at what that looks like and how to bring all those things together. I spoke about sensory impressions earlier so I'm going to give you two definitions. The Hebrew walk as we are supposed to be walking it out is based heavily in sensory impressions. Sensory impressions are defined as the way the brain coordinates information. Our sensory impressions, put much simpler, are our sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. Each of those senses are triggered in various ways by external stimuli. Sight is a result of the ability to distinguish electromagnetic radiation. Hearing is activated by sound waves. Receptors on the tongue help us taste things, and smells are captured by receptors in the nose. Our sense of touch reacts to contact, pressure, or a blow on the skin. All these impressions are communicated to different areas of the brain for processing. Sight to the rear of the cerebrum, or the visual cortex. Hearing to the auditory cortex. To the upper part of the brainstem, and to the tactile cortex. Each area of the brain is made up of different classes of neuron or nerve cells, which are linked in microcircuits. In order to combine two or more sensory impressions, the information must be processed in areas specifically responsible for multi-sensory integration. Imagine an apple activating the visual memory. We see before us a specific shape and color, but we also remember how it feels to hold an apple in our hand Remember the weight and texture and sound of taking a bite and the taste, the smell of the apple. These chemical sensations activate in the mouth and the nose. All this information from our different senses is combined and stored in the memory, which is in our brain. A scientist named Paolo 
wrote that explaining what our sensory information is and how we take it in and how it acts in our brain. As we're looking and developing the characters, we're going to employ a lot of the information we just read. It may seem like a lot, but we'll go back and we'll break apart what we just read. I brought on the beginning that the Hebraic walk is based heavily on sensory impressions. An easier way to say that would be the Hebrew walk or the Hebraic walk is based heavily in how well our five senses are functioning. A really interesting movie that I think explains what happens with sensory impressions from the internal um, aspect comes to mind and the movie is Inside Out. If you've never seen the children's movie Inside Out, it's a very, very deep psychological movie for children. When I first saw it, I couldn't understand why a kid would even want to watch this movie. But as a parent watching the movie, you can see how the responses were taking place in a child's brain. And it also gives you the idea or the ability to better understand what's happening behind the scenes. The movie really played out well in helping parents to understand how or why a child does things. In the beginning of the movie, it starts off with the character the main character being a young girl who is learning new things. She's learning how to walk. She's learning new foods and how her internal systems respond to these things and how when the way they're presented to her or the way they're presented before her play a huge part in how she later makes correlation to food, people, objects, playthings, etc. When we're looking at the first Samuel narrative... And the story of Saul as it plays out in that particular book. We've learned that the personality of Saul started off good. The scripture actually says that he was good pretty much above all the other people that were there. But in Saul's story, as we have been progressing through it, we see that Saul encounters self. Nothing more than an internal conflict with his self and the will of Yah that comes into conflict with what he wants to do or how he thinks thinks things should play out. And when that happens, there is a shift in his character. There is a shift in who he is. There's a shift in his comrades. There's a shift in his relationship with Samuel. And from that moment forward, it seems like all of his interpersonal relationships seem to fall apart. When we first look at it, a person would say, oh, he went mad or he went crazy. It's often our base response to term something that someone does or someone experiences as crazy if we don't take out the time to actually look at what led to that. The end result may be crazy, but the root cause or the stem comes from a very, very genuine and authentic place. For Saul, it came from his disobedience. What happens with perception? Perception is how we interpret those sensory impressions, how we interpret things through our five gates or our five senses, our sight, our touch, our taste, our smell, and our hearing. How do we perceive things and how are they being pushed through? What happens when your perception is skewed? A lot of us think that we operate with a very, very pure and logical or functional perception. And the reality is that our perception is pretty much built up based upon our experiences. And more times than not, if we are not constantly checking ourselves, the world that we are experiencing is based on perception and not necessarily reality. Reality is when we see, touch, taste, smell, hear something, that that thing comes through exactly as it is, not filtered through what a previous experience was, or how we feel about it, or what trauma may be attached to it. There are external factors that can affect one's perception. Disobedience, internal conflict, and trauma are the top three. When we're looking at the story of Saul, especially when we get to chapter 19, and we'll go over that in a little more detail, we're going to see that Saul's relationship with David is going to become shifted in a way that most people wouldn't understand on the surface. We see David go out. He fights a battle. In chapter 18, the people praise him. They sing and say, Saul has killed his thousands. 
but David has killed 10,000. And in that moment, something internally changes or shifts inside of Saul toward David. We have to look at the facts of the story. Did David, in reality, do anything to Saul to cause the shift? The answer is no. Scripture says that a spirit of dysfunction or a ruach ra was given to Samuel because of his disobedience to Yahuwah and his command when it came to going out, fighting battles and subduing the people and that the kingdom was rent from him and would be given to another. All of the things that happened to Saul moving forward in this narrative, in Saul's life narrative, are because of decisions and choices that Saul made. It was not based upon anything anybody else did, but it was all based on the decisions and choices that Saul made for himself. 1 Samuel chapter 19. Saul urged his son Jonathan and all his courtiers to kill David. But Saul's son Jonathan was very fond of David, and Jonathan told David, My father Saul is bent on killing you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Get to a secret place and remain in hiding. I will go out and stand next to my father in the field where you will be, and I will speak to my father about you. If I learn anything, I will tell you. So Jonathan spoke well of David to his father, Saul. He said to him, Let not your majesty wrong his servant David, for he has not wronged you, indeed. All his actions have been very much to your advantage. He took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And Yahuwah wrought a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then should you incur the guilt of shedding the blood of an innocent man, killing David without cause? Saul heeded Jonathan's plea, and Saul swore, As Yahuwah lives, he shall not be put to death. Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all this. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he served him as before. Verse 8. Fight broke out again. David went out and fought the Philistines. He inflicted a great defeat upon them, and they fled before him. Then an evil spirit of Yahuwah came upon Saul, while he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the harp. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul so that he drove the spear into the wall and David fled and got away. That night, Saul sent messengers to David's home to keep watch on him and to kill him in the morning. But David's wife, Michal, told him, unless you run for your life tonight, you will be killed tomorrow. Michal let David down from the window, and he escaped and fled. Michal then took the household idol, laid it on the bed, and covered it with a cloth, and at its head she put a net of goat's hair. Saul sent messengers to seize David, but she said he is sick. Saul sent back the messengers to see David for themselves. Bring him up to me in the bed, he ordered, that he be put to death. When the messengers came, they found the household idol in the bed, with the net of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why do you play tricks on me and let my enemy get away safely? Because Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Help me get away, or I will kill you. David made good his escape, and he made his way to Samuel at Ramah, and told him of all that Saul had done. He and Samuel went and stayed at Naoth. You can see there that there is a drastic change from 18. In 18, we see Jonathan meeting David and being completely enamored with his tenacity and his service and his will to serve and to fight the battles of Yah. And he brings him, Saul, brings David to live where he is, says, and David returned no more home to his family. In 18, we also learn when David receives his wife. David receives his wife after a faulty promise from Saul. Saul was originally going to give him his daughter, Merab, and he recanted and did not marry that, him to that daughter. And he's thought to send David out to battle to have him killed. So his will or his want to kill David happened way before this particular chapter. So this time we're reading about David actually alluding or... Um, 
getting out of the way of Saul's javelin. This is the second time. The first time was in the first chapter after the slaying of David. I mean, after the fight with Goliath. David is encountered with Saul and Saul sees that David deals wisely and he begins to hate him because of it. Now, it's no secret to no one in the story, nor it, to any of us, that David has been uh, anointed to be king. What's interesting, though, and this popped out to me in my reading earlier today as I was reviewing chapter 18, it seems as if David knows he will be king. Seems as if everyone else knows that this will also be a thing in Jonathan's response to him and how Jonathan um, submits himself to this young man in his particular office. It's not a it's not a big mystery. The mystery, though, is how will it come about? Oftentimes, when we don't know how things come about, we mess with the system or if we don't want something to come about and it's inevitable we try to skew or change the variable to fit how we want the income the outcome to to fall into place david knows he's anointed that's a thing samuel knows that david is anointed david's brothers knows that he's anointed jonathan being a servant of yah and having a heart of yah sees something special about this young man and sees that yah is with him he may have not known of the exact anointing because that was obviously done in secret if you go back and read the chapter where david was anointed and how samuel said if he knows i'm going here he's going to kill me but jonathan's perception and his ability to see beyond and to see through the eyes of yah allows him to see something special about david and he immediately sees that the ruach is with him and submits to the ruach and takes david in as a younger brother and protects him he is acting in the in the position of a protector. Saul, on the other hand, also sees the same thing. But instead of seeing that this is something from Yah and submitting to it, he begins to war against it. He tries it in multiple ways. First, he tries it in battle. He wants to send David out to get killed. But Yah is with him, so Yah is fighting his battles. An interesting thing about place and position and timing is that until your time is up, until your position and your post has been fully served or Yah chooses to remove you from that position, there is nothing that can happen to you in that process that should keep you from pursuing that particular thing. It's almost like you're invincible. Not that you should do just anything, but as you're walking in your task and purpose, you're invincible. The javelin of Saul couldn't kill David. The Philistines couldn't kill David. When Saul took one wife, and then put another before David. And he said he put Michal, his daughter, before David to cause him to stumble. She was supposed to be a stumbling block to him. He knew, okay, I can't get him in war. I can't get him in service to me and in service to the people. But I can cause him to stumble with my daughter. Who we look at, as we look into the narrative in chapter 19, we see that there was a mention of an idol. Now, we won't get into that today. We'll dive into it probably in a discussion on Patreon with the patrons to see exactly what that Hebrew word is and exactly what she or how she would have served as a stumbling block to David. So, but the, but Michal loved him. So even there where the adversary being Saul, but being motivated by a greater adversary to throw David off his course, throws all of these different stumbling blocks in his path while she ended up loving him. And so she actually saves him from her father. All of these things are happening because of Saul's perception of what the outcome of him no longer being king is going to look like. Holding on too tightly to a position that was not given because of necessity from uh, because of his particular works or what he did, but because Yah saw something and chose a particular trait for his people. The people asked for a king and Yah gave them Saul. That was a position of privilege. It was a privilege to serve and to work and to be with and in service to Yah's people. Let's look a little bit into more into perception. There's a lot of different things going on in this story. You have David and what he's perceiving. He sees Saul. He's eluding him. He's not getting caught up in the snares. He's acting in wisdom, as Torah said. 
You have Saul who has in chapter 18, scripture says that Saul became David's enemy continually. He became a adversarial force toward what Yah had for David. And no matter what, he was not going to relinquish or submit to the will of Yah. And because David was a person with the anointing, he was going to attack David. It's the same thing that Yah had to tell Samuel when the people wanted a king. He said, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. It's the same thing with Saul and David. When people war against those in the flesh who are trying to walk according to Yah's ways, they're not warring against the person. They're warring against Yah and their perception of what life looks like and how they don't fit into that particular picture. Perception. Perceptual learning takes place in our sensory systems. Our sight, touch, taste, feel, and hearing. How we respond is improved through experience. So, using our five senses, those are given to us at birth. As we grow up, we are learning and experiencing our environment, our family, our friends, and everything through those five senses. If at any time during that developmental process, whether in childhood or adulthood, those things get skewed or messed up in any way, it changes how we perceive and how we experience our, wor our world and the truths of it. We are set up to learn through perception. So everything about Torah is put in place to keep our perceptual learning consistent and true. Perceptual learning occurs through sensory interaction with the environment as well as through practice in performing specific sensory tasks. When we look at Torah and we look at the practices of Torah, whether it's food, whether it's fellowship, family, feast days, each of those things is teaching us a perceptual learning lesson using our senses. When an animal is slain for sacrifice, we are feeling something. We are hearing something. There is a requirement of eating, so we are tasting something. When it comes to sin in the sacrificial system, it employs all of our five senses. When it comes to love in Yah's system, it employs all of our five senses. And he's asking us to employ all of those things so that we get understanding. But without Torah, we will go based upon our base nature, operating in our fallen nature. And just because something looks good, tastes good, feels good, smells good, sounds good, we want to react to it. So Torah allows us to give a governor to our sensory systems, to our five senses, so that everything is aligned in its proper function. We often have the conversation about food and what goes into our bodies, or a big conversation in society now is relationship and who we can love and who we can't love. And that goes down to sensory systems. Our sensory systems are fallen. So they are not operating, if you will, at their optimal capacity. They are tainted by the images we see in society, traumas that we've experienced, just the fall in general, a fall in nature, lust, our flesh. And so Torah acts as a system that brings those things back into right relationship and right response to the natural systems that Yah has set up. With that being said, for Saul, Saul starts off good. So we can almost begin to understand how his process into decline took place. He starts off good. He's a man. He wants to serve. He is fallen because he's human, but he is in a position where he has lived a way to where how he experiences things is close to what is necessary for Yah and Yah's people. What happens is when we operate in those first three we mentioned, which are the external factors that affect perception and disobedience, when we experience internal conflict with the rules and relationships that Yah has set up between us, himself, the land and those around us, and then trauma, when outside instances or outside situations affect us, 
they then distort how we learn from our environment. So in a, a, a more modern example is abuse. When a child is abused, that trauma disrupts how they learn from their environment, how they're supposed to experience their environment when it comes, especially in the parental sense or in the protected space of community and home is love, care, proper discipline, respect, and space to grow. When a system is then affected at that area, then how they respond to everyone after that in that because of the core system is going to be based on that system. So if they are abused in their core system, then they will put themselves in more positions of abuse. It's not the natural tendency of the mind of a person who has been abused or traumatized to break out of that system without first having those incorrect things done reversed in some type of way. So a lot of times when people experience trauma, they seek validation. They seek forgiveness. Um, they seek for the person to ask for forgiveness or they seek some kind of restitution or retribution for those actions, whether it is death of the person. I mean, you can go and let your mind think in, in, in that particular, you know, trend of what people actually think of when they want to be recompensed for a disruption of those basic perceptual learning experiences and the distortion of their sensory systems. Okay, so we look at Saul and Saul's comes, uh, as we're given in the narrative, from his own choices. He's given tasks, but he does not complete the task the way they have been given to him. And because he has not completed the task the way that they have not been given to him, he employs the first external factor that is going to distort his perception, which is disobedience. When we are disobedient, the way we look at the world shifts. It makes us paranoid because we know, we know we're wrong innately. It makes us angry with ourselves and others who we may blame for allowing us to make those choices or experiences. It creates internal conflict and it makes us feel some type of way with ourselves where we're warring with ourselves. I'm doing things that I know that I know are wrong. I don't want to do them, but now I've done them and now I feel like I must continue to do them. Or I try to justify what I've done and make it okay. I try to justify it through a religious experience or through a necessity because of my base needs not being met. However we do, we try to, we create internal conflict by creating cognitive dissonance. I'm confronted with the truth of my disobedience or the truth of my wrong or the truth of my perception. And instead of acquiescing to the truth and fixing my perceptual um, incongruency, I choose to then create internal conflict, try to justify, thus pushing myself into further disobedience. And then the ultimate end is going to be trauma. Trauma in one way or another, either trauma caused to other people around us, trauma caused to ourselves, or trauma being enacted upon us because of us being outside of our system of comfort. So those are the three um, external factors that I believe Saul experienced. The last one was the trauma. The trauma came in, I think, at the at the most pivotal moment. And it, because it was so climactical in a way where Saul comes out, um, goes to battle. Yah says, kill everything. Don't take anything. Samuel comes and he's like, what is this lowing of oxen in my ear? And you see that Samuel did not complete his task of killing King Agag, Samuel, um, Saul doesn't complete the task. Samuel then comes, has to kill Agag and Saul, he tells Saul, you're disobedient. The kingdom has been rent from you. He reaches out to grab Samuel, grabs the, the bottom of his garment, rips it. And then he also further prophesies. And that is symbolic of the kingdom, kingdom being rent from you. And it takes place in front of everyone. It is traumatic. The scene is one of embarrassment, one of trauma, and one of very, very public um, rendering of 
a character who up until this point had been held in a very high regard amongst Israel. And so instead of repentance, and we'll get to what repentance looks like from a neurological standpoint, but instead of repentance, rebellion happens. And Samuel tells him that he says, you did this. He said, but what you did, he said, you were not obedient, obedient. He said, obedience is better than sacrifice and better than the fat of rams, better than all of that. And he said, but what you've done, rebellion is like witchcraft and you have rebelled against the word of Yah. All this is done in front of all the people. I'm just thinking about it. It's just like, oh my gosh, the trauma. <laughs> So these are the things, that's that moment that I think was extremely traumatic for Saul. And it really begins his decline because he doesn't go into it with the spirit of repentance. He's like, I'm still going to be who I'm going to be. And I'm still the king. And he begins to just spiral out of control. He tells the people, let's kill Jonathan because Jonathan had honey. Because he's in, now he's instituting and living amongst his, upon, with his own ways, with his own laws. And so now there's this internal conflict. He knows right from wrong. But now he's living in a way that does not show that. And everybody around him can see it. All right. So in order to make changes, in order for change to take place, in Saul or any of us, when we have disrupted those three major, um, major, major things that affect our perception, which are disobedience, when we're acting, when we're acting in disobedience, when we have internal conflict, or when, we, when we've experienced trauma, or when we have caused ourselves trauma, there has to be a change in how we act. We have to fix how we are relating first in this case to yeah there has to be repentance so the changes that take place in sensory and perceptual systems as a result of perceptual learning occur at the levels of behavior and physiology there has to be a change based upon those five senses and how we're interpreting them in our behavior if there's no change in behavior you can rest assured that there is a very, very dysfunctional thing happening with perception and the five senses. Without change in behavior, there can be no change internally. That gets us to what change and what repentance looks like and what that should have looked like for Saul. And then moving forward, how everyone else is seeing this, but he's not seeing it because of a lack of repentance. If I was to give repentance a psychological term, I would give it the term neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the ability for the mind to take on new experiences and take on new stimuli and to change. Positive stimuli being what we want to focus on. I'll read the textbook definition and then we'll get a little bit more into neuroplasticity and repentance and then jump back into David and his relationship with Saul. Neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to adapt and change. Neuro is for the nerve cell or neuron, and plastic refers to the modifiable nature of our brain and nervous system. Neuroplasticity is the reason teachers teach and therapists treat, because they see that with repeated exposure, practice, and attention, their student and clients learn and change, and so does their brain. The adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, doesn't hold true with neuroplasticity. The brain is plastic at all ages, so we can continue to learn and create changes in our brains and nervous system throughout our lifespan. The reason why I liken that to repentance is because at any time, when we hear or learn that we have done or acted or been in a position of obstinance or disobedience or conflict with Yah, we have the ability to change. It's built into our neurological and our psychological um, systems, the ability to change. So I'm, I'm driving that home because we don't ever want to look at the story of um, Saul and think that he could not have made the choice to change at any time. He could have chosen to think, submit, and do differently. Moving back into the narrative with him and David, instead of choosing 
to change himself, he seeks to then change his environment. And that is the number one no-no in trying to heal or change in a system. When we've created issues, we can't try to change how other people see people or how other people act. We have to change what we've done. And then in changing what we've done, we then are elevated into another state of mind that allows us to better, one, handle the conflict, and two, submit to the will of Yah. So then the question comes into being, what does David do? <laughs> With all this going around, all this going on in Saul's mind, how does David navigate through this whirlwind of chaos that Saul is causing because of his own internal conflict, disobedience, and trauma. David acts in wisdom. And I think that is the most important theme in, in chapter 19. All these things are going on around him. Everybody has something to say. Everybody is trying to convince him that there is, um, there's nothing wrong or that he should just, you know, stick it out. And in every instance from chapter 18, and then as we move into chapter 20, it doesn't get better. And a lot of times when we're on the receiving end or of this kind of situation where either it's pursuit or you're dealing with somebody who is not perceiving the world as they should and have not submitted their will to Yah, it can make the person on the receiving end feel like they're crazy. What David does in all of this is stays true to what he knows. David knows certain truths, the truth that Yah is with him. The truth that everything that's happening is happening because Yah has orchestrated and that everything will be okay if he just walks circumspect to Yah. He does not argue. He does not fuss. He does not fight. He does not cuss. He does not show his manliness. He does not say, amen, we just sit down and talk. I ain't done nothing to you. No, what David seeks to do is to stay close to Yah and allow everything to play out just as it should. And then in, the, in that process, Yah gives David advocates. Jonathan happens to be one of David's greatest advocates during this time period. Jonathan acts in a way of a mediator. Because in a lot of ways, I think Jonathan probably doesn't even want to admit that his father is as far gone in his psychological processes as he is. And he can't seem to understand or wrap his mind around why any of this is happening. Often when we are reading scripture and are journeying through a character's personal experience, we find it difficult to connect when the experience is foreign to our life and experiences. When this happens, we often try and make connections on an abstract level. But in the process, we miss what is being conveyed to us in a very practical ways in regard to life and navigating situations and the thought processes that should be taken. When we look at Saul's story from Jonathan's perspective, so Jonathan is looking as an insider, but on the outside, he's on the outside of his father's thinking. So he's rationalizing everything that is happening through a Torah-based lens. When he goes to his father and he talks to him, he goes, you know, why would you want to kill him? Why would you want to bring in sin? So he's in inserting, if you will, into Saul's mind, truth. It's a sin to kill someone. This man has done nothing to you. Didn't you rejoice with him? Why should you kill him? When the truth is interjected, Saul makes a very, very significant shift. But because the conflict is bigger than just an internal shift or a input of some truths, it comes back to that root cause. What is actually driving Saul? And it's not a war between Saul and David. It's a war between Saul and Yah. And David is the easiest target in that system. Jonathan is viewing things linear. David has not done anything. He's loyal. So you should love him and you shouldn't do anything to him. Jonathan's perception and experience of David is based upon the facts of David and his relationship with David. Jonathan has submitted to Yah's will for David 
And so he has no internal conflict with the reality of David's position, nor with the validity of his actions. We are taught that we cannot determine the motive of a person. I submit that we can determine the motive of a person, but only through the lens of their reality. In life, we are often paralyzed by the actions of others and immediately begin to try and make sense of them from our own perspective and vantage point. We begin to rationalize and try to reason with people, not knowing that their motive may not at all be driven by the factors that we deduce in our heads. The motive of a person is their motive. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to make logical sense. (laughs) But it makes sense to them. Saul had a reason based upon his trauma for the motive in killing David. And no matter what anyone said, we were never ever going to, they were never, I'm sorry, they were never ever going to move him off of that temporarily, moments of clarity. But his end result was based upon the reality that he chose to live based upon his trauma. And the reality was, I'm not going to be king. He's not going to be king. And in his mind, he believed that David was going to take the kingship from him. At one point, he thought Jonathan was going to take the kingship from him. Because he was holding on to something that was no longer his, that he relinquished because of his disobedience, he was willing to go through whatever lengths to retain that, even if it meant losing his mental cognition and his attachment to the real world. Saul was in conflict and his disobedience and ultimately denial skewed his perception. Maya Angelou said, when a person shows you who they are, believe them the first time. The profundity in that statement lies in her ability to see that a person's actions were not based upon who you are, but who they are and how they perceive the world around them. When a person distorts reality, they begin to cause you to live in that same distortion, especially if you try to rationalize their behavior based upon your perception. David wasn't that way. Whether David wanted to believe it or not, David knew that through the wisdom given to him by Yah, his life was in the balance. He didn't need to know why. He just knew what was true. That leads us to our closing and how to deal with perception and when a perception from ourselves or from others are skewed. The first part, when it comes to ourselves and when we see that our perception is skewed, whether it's because of trauma or our disobedience or internal conflict, we have to submit ourselves to the will of Yah. And we have to repent for the actions that we've done and the pain that we've caused in our skewed perception. Even if the reason why our perception was skewed was not because of our own doing, the actions and the ways that we've acted and the ways that we've perceived the world have been affected and others may have been affected by those particular things. So while we're not apologizing for trauma that was enacted upon us, we are apologizing for how we began to view and to treat the rest of the world once we come to the knowledge that our perception has been distorted. Some people may not know what it looks like for your perception to be distorted. And so I'm going to give an example. And I just, it's just something that I want you guys to meditate on or to think about in the coming, the coming week. And it really is going to be... Um, used a lot as we move forward, looking at how perception can help us moving forward, especially on our walk in Torah. Because as a people who have either been in different religious practices, who have been in states of repression, or who have just been traumatized by the amount of new information that comes with the reality that we have to follow the father, we're all dealing in some levels of perceptual distortion. And we also are dealing heavily with perceptual relearning and re-employing the 
sensory impressions or our five senses that we've been taught not to use because of the necessity of the greater system of the of the mass system to keep us lulled and sleep by not being in observation of the things around us. So I'm going to give you a, a brief example just so you really get a grasp on what was happening to Saul and how that was distorted and how by looking at the distortion of perception, we can better help ourselves and help one another um, understand what is required of us as we move into a walk of constant repentance, which means neuroplasticity and relearning and inputting positive information so that we can better understand the truth about the things around us and not just how we perceive them based upon the negative things that have affected our perception. So I'll use this um, as far as trauma is concerned. I use trauma as the launching point for understanding what a skewed perception looks like because of external factors or internal conflict or trauma. Trauma is the uncoordinated processing of sensory stimuli. When we experience something like taste and smell, it is supposed to tell the truth about what we are experiencing. It tastes sweet. If it is sweet, is a truth. Or it smells like roses. If it is a rose, is a truth. Or strawberries, if it's a strawberry, is a truth. When trauma is interjected into the process of sensory impressions, it adds information that is not directly connected to the truth we are experiencing, thus making the truth abstract. And oftentimes, if not all the time, an abstract truth is a lie. Now, when we taste a particular food, we are averted. Not because the food is not telling the truth, but because the food is now associated with a negative experience, thus rendering the reality of the object of none effect. I'll give you an example of my skewed sensory perception based upon a traumatic experience. I took a vacation about 10 years ago to Fiji. It was a 10 hour flight. And of course, on a flight, you fly with people from all over the world. I ended up in Fiji for the first couple of days. I was great. If you don't know anything about Fiji, you can drink the water. So I know it wasn't a, a water situation. Fiji water is literally from Fiji. So I went out to a restaurant and it was actually around the time of our first anniversary. And we were sitting down to dinner and I had curried something or another. I can't even remember what it was. I believe my brain has blocked out whatever it was, but it was curry. That evening we went out and at the hotel we were staying at, they had um, a river where you could uh, kayak. So my husband and myself, we go out and we get our kayaks, we kayak. And when I got off the kayak, I was walking and I mean, I have pictures. So I know it just, it hit really suddenly and I have pictures smiling and like literally right after the picture, I went to sit my oar down, which is the paddle for the kayak and immediately felt dizzy. And as I walked back to the room, dizziness turned into griping stomach, which turned into vomiting, which turned into the worst 24 hour bug I probably ever had in my whole life. And for the next six years or more, I refused and would literally experience the feeling that I felt when I first like got sick whenever I was around curry. Was there, is there something wrong with curry? No. Was it the food? I don't know. Was it the travel? Quite possibly. I don't actually know what it was, but it took me six years before I ate curry again because the, the, the sickness was so intense. That is a example of trauma uncoordinating sensory stimuli. When I eat curry, now I can just not like curry, but when I eat curry, it should not elicit negative thoughts, feelings, or um, conditioned responses of sickness that are not there. But because of that trauma, it now distorted the truth about the food. Curry is a food. <laughs> 
Curry is a flavor of food that doesn't necessarily have a truth that it causes everybody to have that same experience. I want to give you that just so you can see how something simple like the wrong cologne because it belonged to someone else can cause a uncoordinated sensory experience. And it will cause us to act and react in ways that are not consistent with the truth of the experience that we're experiencing. We have to make sure that as we are living and walking in this walk, that our experiences are filtered through Torah, that they're filtered through truth, and that we handle each experience with the same truth every single time. We don't want to get caught up in labeling our experiences. It is our innate nature to take previous experiences and to protect and guard ourselves. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we are not reacting as if we are traumatized like a Saul, but we're acting in wisdom like a David. The reality was he was sought after to be killed, but he acted in wisdom and moved himself out of the situation because he understood that his reaction was just as pivotal as his defense of himself. What he did had to be done calculated. He couldn't just know that this man was going to kill him and then try to kill him. He's the king. So he had to employ the wisdom of Yah and understand his position and where he was and what he was supposed to be doing in order to move about in a way that was not in a traumatized state. As we begin to unpack David and his character outside of the context of his conflict with Saul, you'll see that he had a lot of issues, but David was found a system where he was able to thrive in walking circumspect to Yah. So yes, he had enemies. Yes, he had internal conflict. Yes, he had family issues, but everything stem back to operating and walking circumspect to Yah. Have you ever wondered how the Messiah, knowing how people thought, how people were going to act, what people were going to do, how he was able to live in that current moment and walk circumspect with Yah? The reason why was his focus was not based on what the world was doing, but it was focused on his task and his action in that moment. That was David. David was able to focus on his task. And he knew that whatever was happening, it was orchestrated by Yah and he kept himself close to Yah. At the end of the narrative, we learn that David goes off and he seeks out Samuel, the very prophet that Saul rejected when he was rejected as king. So when Saul rejected was rejected from the kingship, it was almost as if he rejected his relationship with Yah. And David understood the importance of the relationship, not only to Yah, but to Yah's prophets and his teachers and his, and his people. And so when David experienced that low moment of having to get away, he immediately goes to Samuel to be encouraged. And what we see is Saul sending out, still pursuing to kill David. He had no boundary, no regard for his life, no regard for the fact that he was with Samuel. He didn't care anymore. And as he went out, he encounters a, um, first his men, the men he sends out, and encounters this band of prophets. And they are caught up in the prophesying, in the music, and in the singing, and in the worship. And so he sends out a couple of groups of men. It happens to both of them. And then the very thing happens to him. And what that showed is the power of Yah in the midst of everything. In the midst of conflict, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of growth, in the midst of re, um, repentance, in the midst of learning new things, and in the midst of, of adjusting that that is the most powerful force in the story. Saul seems powerful. Saul has men. Saul has might. David flees to Samuel. David has Yah. 
And David seeking Yah and David being where he was supposed to be allowed for Yah to even catch his enemy up in praise and worship during that time. And it says that Saul stripped himself and lay there prophesying because the reality, like a child who is caught in disobedience, who is so far away from where they want to be, but so obstinate and so, so hard hearted toward the remedy that he literally just crumbles. He melts in that moment, in the, in the, in the moment of the prophecy and the moment of the singing, and the dan- dancing, he shows his true vulnerability and it allows us to see that underneath all of that, underneath all of that anger and that hatred toward David is a wounded man who is refusing to repent and refusing to let go of whatever is inside so that Yah can heal. And we know that it's possible because just coming into contact with the music and the dancing brought a sense of healing and calm to Saul. So how much more so if he had let go and relinquished his personal vendetta with Yah and how it was being expressed with David and then towards Samuel, if he had just stopped and taken in that moment and repented. But the reality is, as we move into chapter 19, I mean, as we move into chapter 20, is that it just ends with, is Saul too among the prophets? Saul had a wonderful call on his life. Saul had the opportunity to be so impactful for the kingdom of Yah and for the nation of Israel. But Saul got caught up in himself. And Saul got, Saul got caught up in position. And in getting caught up, he forsook his first love and the thing that put him in the position in the first place, which was his ability to experience and see and move in a way that nobody else moved. As we journey through this walk as Hebrews, we have to be sure that we keep our perception in line with Yah, that we stay single-eyed and single-minded and focused on what's important to the Father, and that we relinquish and let go of all the distractions. And in the process of this walk, as we make mistakes, that we are childlike in our ability to repent and to move forward, that we keep using our five senses and allow Yah to remove all the traumas and things that are blocking us from truly hearing him the way that we should and truly hearing one another the way that we should and truly experiencing this world and this life the way that we should so that we can walk circumspect to him. We need to be in a place where we are able to sense and learn and grow and understand where we're holding ourselves back or where we may be holding one another back. And as we move into chapter 20 and we look into the further development of David and how he navigates in wisdom, we'll look at how he takes one person's negative perception that begins to skew his whole reality. It skews how the whole kingdom sees David takes that one person's negative perception and the people that are banded together with Saul, but takes the truth that Yah has given him about who he is and stands on that. And how even in that process of journeying to kingship, as he makes mistakes, what repentance looks like and what growth looks like and what the term neuroplasticity looks like, his ability to take on new things and learn new things and correct his behaviors so that he is constantly effective. When we stop taking on the mind of Yah and and when we're no longer able to be instructed and given new things and able to stretch our minds, at that moment, we're dead. We can't receive any more information and we're forced to operate in the past and only in a form of self that no longer serves Yah and the kingdom and we get stuck. We don't want to be that. We want to be like David where as things happen, he's constantly shifting and he's fluid and he's able to move and grow past difficult times so that 
he can arrive at a place of servitude to Israel, being one of the best kings that Israel's ever had. But we haven't got there yet. So stay tuned. Thank you guys for sticking in there. I know it was a lot of information. So it's in this podcast form. It will be available for replay. Thank you so much for tuning in. Can't wait to spend this time with you next week discussing David, Saul, and David's journey toward kingship. Shalom.